Well, good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge. Awesome to have you with us this morning. I want to say hello to everybody joining us in our online campus. Thanks for uh, participating through that venue as well. And today we are uh, continuing and wrapping up a series called Foundations. And the reason for this series is all about what the mission of the church is built on, the values upon which the mission of the church is built. So uh, we do this every year. We just take a few weeks and we realign because over time, uh, as we get busy throughout the year and different things are happening, and over time we can start to drift a little bit from the original reason why the church was started. And so the mission of the church was given to us by Jesus. We want to uh, help people find Jesus and help people follow Jesus, show people what it looks like to discover who Jesus is, and then walk with them in relationship as we follow Jesus together. And so um, over the last few weeks, we've looked at the values that we embrace as a faith community that help us to accomplish that mission. And we said the first one is grace. Uh, and I'd encourage you, if you missed any of these weeks, go back and watch them online. Uh, it'll be really helpful and beneficial for you. But the first one is grace. We said, you know, grace really helps us rewrite the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And uh, when we recognize that we've received grace freely from God, it allows us to give it away freely to other people so they can experience that as well. And that's really where it all starts. And then uh, the second week, we talked about this value of community, that following Jesus is not a vertical-only type of thing. It's actually horizontal as well. That if it's only vertical morality, it can actually lead us to a lot of uh, spiritual pride and arrogance. But it's in the one another's that we live out what we're getting from Jesus. And so uh, we are meant to one another, one another. We're meant to instill courage in one another to help each other live out the way of Jesus in our lives. And it takes courage to live what we profess to believe. And so in order to do that, we need to have some other people that we can be eyeball to eyeball with who we know and they know us and we can help move each other forward. And so we encourage you to jump into a group and our whole catalog of groups is going to be uh, live next Sunday so you can jump into a group and, and uh, learn more about that. And then uh, third week, we talked about uh, serving others. And we started this say yes thing and we said, you know, it, it takes so many people to pull off what we do every single week. And as we looked at the scriptures, we discovered God always uses ordinary people who simply make themselves available. And the reason that the church has continued to move forward is because so many ordinary people not necessarily had, uh, you know, the most qualified or uh, had the most resources, but it was people who said, whatever I have, God, I'll use it. I'll make myself available and I'll serve. And so we encourage you to jump into a team. And then last week we said uh, generosity is one of our values, that we recognize everything we have has been entrusted to us by God, that he's the owner and we're the manager. And we manage well. And when it comes to our resources, it's not about more. It's about how we manage whatever we've been given. And so we return a percentage of that back to God as a part of our worship. And when we do that, our faith grows and God's kingdom moves forward. And so today, we're going to wrap up the series. Next week, we start a brand new series called This Beautiful Mess. We've invited a whole bunch of our friends and neighbors from all over the community. And uh, we sent out 82,000 mailers last week. And I know a bunch of you got those. We'll start that next week. Today, we're going to wrap up with our fifth uh, value, which is spiritual maturity. Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. Now, what exactly does it mean to be spiritually mature? We know what it means in the sense of uh, maturity in just kind of everyday life, right? For me to mature as a person or for my kids to mature as people, I want them to grow. When I look at the lives of my kids, I want them to become fully functioning adults, contributing members of society, people who can, you know, hold down a job and hold down a relationship and uh, take care of other people and understand how life works. 
And um, while I recognize, especially when it comes to like my two boys, their, their humor may never mature past junior high, right? Because <laughs> fart jokes will always be funny. Uh, but outside of that, maturity means, man, when I look at their lives, that there's a, a progression of growth. That the things that they were doing when they're five years old aren't the things they're doing when they're 25 years old, right? That, that there's actually some growth taking place that as I look back on their lives, you see that there's this progression of growth. And so when you think about that in terms of spiritual maturity, what does it actually look like to grow spiritually, to mature spiritually? And what would it look like to know that we're on the right path towards spiritual maturity in our relationship with Jesus? And so kind of to kick this off today, I think it's important to note that sometimes the way this gets pitched, uh, this idea of following Jesus, it makes us feel like, uh, man, it's kind of this big rah-rah, it's an easy sell, and it's, hey, just follow Jesus because he really wants to make your life easier. And I want you to know uh, that's not true. (laughs) Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, okay? Uh, Sometimes it gets pitched like this, right? Uh, Are you struggling financially? God will make you rich. Uh, are, you, um, are you sick? God will heal you if you have enough faith. Uh, God wants your life to be great, right? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. Just follow Jesus and everything's going to turn out great. And the truth is, sometimes we then start following Jesus, things don't turn out so great, and we're like, hey, this is not what I read about in the Christianity brochure. What's going on? This feels like a bait and switch. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God is not some cosmic killjoy that just wants to strike you down, okay? He's not against your happiness, In fact, oftentimes following Jesus and living life the way that God designed us to live life, happiness is a natural byproduct of that. It's just that he wants something so much more for us than simply temporary happiness here in this life. He actually wants us to become the people that he's originally created us to be. See, here's the reality. Jesus didn't come to make our lives easier. Jesus came to make my life brand new. Jesus came to make my life brand new. Now that's really important. It's an important distinction. In John chapter 3, John was one of Jesus' followers, and he records for us a story that he witnessed with a guy named Nicodemus. And Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, and Nicodemus is actually a Pharisee, a religious leader who comes to Jesus at night. And he starts asking him some questions, and he, he starts off by saying, Jesus, you're a really... Uh, you know, you're, you're, it's clear that you're from God because you're a gifted teacher. It's clear that nobody who uh, does the, the miraculous signs and wonders that you're doing, you, you must be from God. And as they're talking, uh, Jesus, right after he says this, Jesus replies to Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, if you want to experience life in God's kingdom, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused by that, and and he's like, I don't understand, what does that mean? And basically Jesus says, look, I'm not really that interested in being a great teacher or somebody who works a bunch of miracles. What I'm really interested in, what I really came for, is I want to make you brand new. I, I want the old you to die, and I want the new you to come to life. I want the you that I've created you to be to come fully to life, to enter into life in my kingdom. I want to give you a brand new life. I want to give you a brand new identity. And this is huge because we tend to be a lot like Nicodemus. We think it's about the teaching. We think it's about God doing stuff to make our life easier. Like, God, help me, bless me, protect me, right? Be with me. But Jesus says, look, you're focusing on the wrong things. I've come to change your heart. I've come to change your identity. I've come to actually make you a brand new person. And the reason that we sometimes have a difficult time understanding that is because for something to be, to be born new, the old me has to die before God can give us new life. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul says it like this. He's writing to a group of Jesus' followers in the city of Corinth, and he says, that means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. Well, so what happened to my old life? It died, which is not a lot of fun, right? We put to death our old self, and we're resurrected as an entirely new person. And Paul says, your old life is dead, but then he says, oh, but there's good news. God wants to give you brand new life. God wants the old you to die so that he can come in and give you brand new life. That's good news. But it isn't very safe language, is it? And the reason that we're sometimes, I think, disappointed in this version of Christianity that we sometimes adopt is that it's too safe. Sometimes we approach Christianity uh, the way that we approach uh, the food in a cafeteria that's sort of a la carte. And we go, oh man, I really like this and I like that. Not a big fan of that. Uh, Not a fan of the coleslaw. Okay, the potato salad looks like it's been sitting there for a while. And we tend to approach Christianity sort of a la carte. Okay, man, oh, massive heapings of the grace and the forgiveness. I'm going to take a big chunk of eternal life. Not a big fan of the sacrifice. Don't, Don't really love the obedience part so much. But it really isn't an a la carte approach. And I think sometimes we want the easy parts of Christianity, the easy parts of following Jesus. But Jesus says, look, it's not very safe, but if you'll put your old self to death, I want to give you life that's brand new. And I'm the creator of the universe, and I created you, and I love you, and I want to make you the you that I originally created you to be. But sometimes to do that, the old me has to be put to death. And see, growth always requires change. It always requires a little bit of discomfort. In any area of your life where you're going to experience maturity, where you're going to experience growth, it requires change to make it happen. And Jesus came into the world and he said, I want to make you brand new. I want to give you a brand new identity. I don't just want to alter your life a little bit. I don't just want to like uh, take the rough edges and soften that out a little bit. I actually want the you that's broken to die so that I can resurrect you to something that's brand new. That's why Paul would later describe water baptism. That's why in just a few weeks, I think it's three weeks from tonight, uh, we're doing a a worship night here. And we're going to have, our our band is going to be singing and we're going to be worshiping and singing songs together. And as a part of that night, we're going to baptize people in water. Well, why do we do that? What is this water baptism thing all about? This is about taking the old me. It's a symbolic, uh, it's a symbolic gesture that says, okay, I've taken the old me, and, I, and I've crucified that with Christ. Just as, just as Jesus was put to death, I'm putting the old me to death. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, I'm rising to new life with him. And so when we, when we bring people down into the water, it's, it's uh, symbolic of this uh, burial. We're burying the old me in a watery grave. And when we come up out of the water, it's symbolic of this resurrection to new life. The Apostle Paul says this, By our baptism, we were buried with him and shared his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also might have new life. I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized in water and you've experienced the grace of Jesus, sign up for water baptism in three weeks from today. We would love to celebrate with you the old life is gone, a new life has come. See, God always accepts you as is, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants to take you from here and he wants to make your life brand new. He wants to put to death the old you and your old ways of living and he wants you to be a brand new person. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Nobody ever encounters Jesus and stays the same. 
Everybody who comes across, crosses paths with Jesus is changed in some way. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with earning relationship with God. If you found hope in Jesus, you've already crossed from death to life. Grace, the grace God gives, absolutely free, costs you nothing. Following Jesus, continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to put your old self to death and, and live out your identity as a part of God's family, somewhere along the way, costs you something. Grace is free. Spiritual growth is where we partner with God's spirit to continue to live out our identity as a part of God's family. So let me give you a couple of things before we jump into uh, what spiritual maturity is and how we can do that. Here's a couple of things spiritual maturity is not. Number one, spiritual maturity is not Bible knowledge. Okay, so Bible knowledge is a great thing. I'm not saying, don't, don't uh, misunderstand me here. What I'm not saying is, don't read the Bible, don't study the Bible, you don't need it. I'm not saying that at all. But Bible knowledge by itself is not an indicator of how spiritual you are or how spiritually mature you are. Jesus never said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you know a lot about the Bible. If you know where to find First Chronicles, that's how you're spiritually mature. Jesus never said that. And I wish he did. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was a kid, I participated in something called Bible quiz. Yeah, that's the thing. And I know, you're like, does this guy have friends? I know, I know. Uh, here's how Bible quizzing would work, okay? This is scripture memorization meets jeopardy. Okay? So basically, I was given a pack of cards that I could memorize with different point values, different Bible questions, different point values. And <clears throat> once a week, we would get together with kids from our church, and we would practice. We would, and we actually had, um, uh, there was a, like a thing that you would actually have a buzzer, and you could buzz in and beat other people. And if you got to buzz in first, you got to answer the question, and you'd get points, and there's the whole thing. And then once a month, our team from our church would go to a Bible quiz meet, and we would meet up with a dozen other churches, and we would actually compete against other churches about who knew the Bible better. My parents still have trophies and ribbons that I won from being a Bible quiz champion. Yeah. Woo. You're like, no wonder you're a pastor. This guy never had a shot. <laughs> like, his parents put him on that track early on, right? My, my buddies would be like, you, you going out for Little League this year? I'm like, no, I'm in Bible League. It's awesome. Now, there's nothing wrong with Bible knowledge. But let me tell you something. Knowing the Bible does not equate to spiritual maturity. Knowing a lot about the Bible doesn't make you spiritually mature. It just means that you memorized a lot of stuff. In fact... It may make you less mature because oftentimes people who know a lot about the Bible tend to be arrogant. They don't treat people very well. And we're going to see spirituality isn't about what you know, it's about how you live. Here's what else uh, spiritual maturity is not. It's not just rule following. Right? Whoever follows the rules the best, they're the most spiritually mature. That's just not true. I don't know what your religious upbringing was, but when I say structure and rules, the characters that come into our minds from Jesus' day are the Pharisees. They're the ones who uh, were this group of religious leaders who Jesus constantly spoke against because they measured spirituality in terms of structure and rules. Whoever checked the most boxes, whoever followed the rules meticulously, they were the ones who were the most holy, the most righteous. They were the most spiritually mature. 
And I, I'll tell you, I've been uh, a pastor full-time working at churches for the last 24 years. And in 24 years, no one has ever said to me, you know what? You know what my problem is? I think I'm a Pharisee. No one's ever said that to me. Not one person. But I think it's really easy for us to slip into if we're not careful. If you take personal convictions that are the result of your own religious upbringing or your own family background or your own experiences, and then that becomes a conviction for you, but it, it isn't necessarily found in the scriptures. It's not backed up by any scripture. And you try to make that somebody else's convictions, then you're in danger of behaving like the Pharisees. You, you, this happens all the time in churches where people go, well, this is what it looked like for me. And when I started following Jesus, this was the environment and this was the climate and these were the practices. And that really helped me. So if you want to follow Jesus, here's the things you need to do to follow Jesus. You might not find that in the scriptures, but hey, it was how I came to faith. So this is how you should come to faith as well. And if we're not careful, we can make rule following and structure and keeping checking the boxes. That can be the measure of spiritual maturity. And it's so easy to do. Someone opens up their hearts to God's grace and in our attempt to make sure that they don't slip back into their old sin and ways, we give them this sort of gold standard, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is what you got to live by. And it's rules. And don't drink and don't smoke and don't go to R-rated movies and don't gamble and don't hang out with people who aren't Christians and don't dress worldly and don't get tattoos and don't read Harry Potter and don't listen to Nickelback. <laughs> Some of those are just good wisdom, you know. And if we ever took a moment to step back and be honest with ourselves, most of the rules are ones that we came up with, and they're just really a reflection of our own personal upbringing or religious background. That's why Paul later on would write this to people living in Colossae. He says, you've died with Christ, and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. And there's that language again. You've died, and now you've been resurrected. You've, you've died and been made brand new. He set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? These were things that had to do with uh, these very specific rules and with how they went into the temple and how they interacted with each other. And he says, why do you still follow these rules? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. He says, the, these aren't making you any more spiritually mature. They're not helping you to become more like Jesus. And for some reason, we think the person who gets up every day at 4 a.m. and reads and journals and only shops at Christian bookstores is somehow more spiritual than everyone else. But you cannot measure spiritual maturity just on rule following or structure and I hope that that brings you some freedom today because the idea that you are somehow, uh, you have to measure up to be accepted by God is not found in the heart of God. That's only found in the heart of human beings. That is not found in the heart of God. God accepts you as is. That's why uh, for years from the very beginning, even I remember all the way back in the movie theater, right? We'd, we'd say things like, uh, uh, no church experience required. No perfect people allowed. No making out in the back row. Just some simple guidelines, right? And what's amazing is uh, those were just phrases that helped us as a culture recognize God accepts us as is, but he loves us too much to leave us as is. And so he loves you too much to leave you that way. You are loved by God. God wants what is good for you because of his love, not as a condition to his love. 
So it's not, hey, if you, if you do the things I want you to do, then I'll love you. It's, hey, I love you. By the way, because I love you, here's just the best way to live your life. It's not as a condition to relationship. It's because of a relationship that already exists. And so then God says, I accept you as is. Whatever your baggage, whatever your past, whatever the things you're dealing with, I, I accept you as is. But now because I love you, because we're in relationship, I want to help move you from there and move you forward to become everything I've created you to be. That's so important. And so what does that look like? How do, how do we grow spiritually? What does it look like? I want to give you five simple reminders that will help us to move towards spiritual maturity. And I believe as a church, if we will all embrace this individually, then as a church, we will make an incredible difference, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the people around us. The first one is this. Spiritual maturity is fueled by trust. It's fueled by trust. Now, I intentionally use the word trust instead of faith because sometimes when we think of faith, that word faith gets a little bit misinterpreted. We tend to think of faith uh, in terms of believing the right things. Faith meaning, okay, I have faith because I have a mental assent to, I've acknowledged the fact that I believe in these 16 tenets or these five core doctrines or whatever it is. But it's very transactional. And the truth is, when the New Testament authors talk about faith, they're not talking in terms of do you believe the right things. They're talking in terms of trust. It is much less theological and transactional, and it is much more relational. Do I trust in the person of Jesus? Do I trust that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he has said he will do? We tend to think in faith in terms of transactional. Okay, uh, if, um, if I have enough faith, then I can get healed, and if I didn't get healed, I must not have had enough faith. If I just have this much faith, you know, I, I can't get healed, but I'll get good parking places at the mall. This much faith, you know, it's like there's different levels and nobody really knows how to measure it, but it's like, well, it's proven by what happens. That's not faith. Faith is about relationship. It's about saying, I trust Jesus. Do I trust him? Am I willing to move my life in a certain direction based on everything that I know? But do I believe he is who he said he is and he'll do what he said he'll do? It looks, a l it's a lot less about uh, I believe the right things and it's a relational act much like a wedding ceremony. In a wedding ceremony, you don't have certainty. You don't believe certain things. You just go, I know enough about this person that I'm willing to commit to relationship with them and move forward. That's called trust. And that's really what faith in Jesus is. You go, okay, God, there's a bunch of stuff I don't know. There's some uncertainty about the future. But based on everything I've learned about you up to this point, I trust you enough that I'm willing to commit to relationship with you moving forward. I love that the, the way the writer of Hebrews says it. It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. When you look at the creation narrative, you look at the story of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, and they are uh, told that, you know, God really, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so they rebel against God and his commands. And the sort of moral of that story, the, the, when you get down to the core of it, it's not a story about rebellion. It's not a story about disobedience. It's a story about trust. That they didn't trust that God actually wanted what was best for them. They didn't trust that his way was the best way, which led them to disobey, which led them to this rebellion. It's a story. It's, an, it's, it's a trust issue. And if you want to grow spiritually mature, you have to wrestle this issue of trust in your own head. Because there are times when God asks you to do things that run counter-cultural to the way the rest of the world works. 
And you have to determine, am I willing to do things God's way, or am I going to go ahead and do things my own way? This is a conversation I've had, by the way, with all four of my kids. At one point or another, as your kids get older, they want to know why, right? When they're younger, it's like, hey, do this, and they're like, okay, I'll do that. You're, you're just my parents. I don't know anything else. And then they reach an age where they're like, why? And you're like, I'll tell you why. <laughs> but this is the conversation I've had with, with my kids because from my perspective as a very, very old man in their eyes, uh, they're like, why? And I go, look, uh, here's why. And I try to explain it to them. And then at some point in the conversation, it breaks down to, they're not going to understand it because they, don't, they haven't lived the number of years that I've lived. They don't, they're not looking at it from the same vantage point. And there's just no way to explain it. So at that point, all I can do is say this. I can't even explain it to you in terms that you'll get it, but I'm going to ask you to trust me. Do you trust me? And at that point, after the eye rolling, usually they're like, yeah. Yes, Dad, I trust you. Have I ever given you a reason not to trust me? No. Okay, then if you'll do it the way I'm telling you to, if you'll do this, if you'll, if you'll put this practice in your life, if you'll, if you'll trust me, I promise you, you'll benefit. Okay. Because it's an issue of trust. And I wonder sometimes in our lives, if we haven't settled that issue of trust, and that's why we want to do things our own way sometimes, because it, really at its core... We haven't wrestled that issue of trust. And God's going, look, from my vantage point, I, I wish I could fully explain to you why this is the best way to live, but I'm just, I'm telling you, I created you, I love you, and, and I can't fully put it in terms that you'll understand, but if you'll trust me, it's going to be for your benefit. Have you wrestled through that issue of trust? Because spiritual maturity is fueled by, God, I trust that your way is best. Secondly, we grow by making and keeping commitments. Nothing profound here. We do this all the time. In different areas of our lives, we grow because we make and we keep a commitment. I want to I grow physically, and so I make a commitment to get up and exercise. I want to I be healthier. I make a commitment in my diet. I want to uh, have a good relationship, so I make a commitment to uh, have a date uh, night once a week. I, I want to have, there's things that we make these commitments and we keep them because we want to grow in those areas. In Acts chapter 2, there's a guy named Luke who is uh, sort of writing this um, biography of the early church, and here's the way he describes it. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Circle that word devoted on your outline. What that means is that they devoted themselves. They made and kept a commitment to certain repetitive behaviors. They made a commitment to certain repetitive behaviors, recognizing when we incorporate these behaviors into our lives, this is the payoff. And one of the things I'm grateful for when it comes to this church is the fact that this is a church for anybody to come to. We have worked so hard for anybody to experience the grace of God. And I love the fact that you can come as you are. And I love the fact that we have worked so hard over the last 15 years to fight against legalism, to fight against judgmentalism, to make grace so prevalent, and to lead with grace. But make no mistake about it, come as you are is not licensed to stay as you are. God wants you to move forward. And the Christian life is a call to respond in commitment to the grace that we've received. And my prayer is that we would never use come as you are as a crutch to keep us from making commitments that will help us to grow. The Apostle Paul often described our partnership with God's Spirit, that God's Spirit uh, gives us grace. 
but that we partner then to move forward and grow. And he uses the, uh, the metaphor of athletics quite a bit throughout the New Testament. In his letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. In other words, we've got a part to play in this training. And that's why we've been talking through each of these values over the last several weeks. We recognize it starts with grace. God's given grace to us, so we want to give grace to other people. But then we make and keep certain commitments. To live out our value of community, we're saying, look, make and keep the commitment to join a group. Because when you put that repetitive behavior into your life, this is what happens. You're starting to, you start to build community with people who know you and you know them, and you can give each other courage to continue to live what you believe. And then we said, hey, make and keep a commitment to serve together, to be on a serving team, because when you do that, it's incredible what happens when collectively we create these environments together. And then we said, look, make and keep this commitment to being generous with what God has given you, because when you do that, your faith grows and God's kingdom expands, and you get to be a part of that. You're managing well what God's given you, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we make and keep commitments, repetitive behaviors that we put into our life. These are all commitments. And as we embrace each of these values and we make and keep commitments, we start to mature. We start to grow, much like the person that exercises, the person that puts repetitive behaviors into their life. They see the fruit of that over time. We see the fruit of that in our own lives as we grow to spiritual maturity. What commitments are you willing to make and keep so that you can continue to grow spiritually? Here's the third one. Awareness leads to obedience. Now this one is not one anybody likes to talk about. Obedience. You're like, ah, oh, man, really? What's interesting about these next verses is they're written by a guy named Solomon who the scriptures tell us had a gift from God. He was the wisest man who ever lived or ever will live. And if anybody could have leaned into his own understanding of how the world worked and probably been fine, it would have been Solomon. And yet he writes these words, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Solomon says, look, don't just trust your heart. Trust your heavenly Father with your heart. You trust the passions and desires of your heart to God's ways. You submit them to God's ways. And we know this is true, that when we just follow our heart, it's led us to some really bad decisions. It's led us to some places where, we, where we've said, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't spent that. I wish I hadn't gone there. But I was just following my heart. And now I realize it, what seemed right in the moment didn't actually help me to grow towards spiritual maturity. It, it actually took me down a path that I didn't want to be on. Whenever, here's what Solomon says, whenever your understanding, whenever your reasoning bumps into God's ways, go with God's ways. Whenever your understanding of relationships, whenever your understanding of parenting, whenever your understanding of career, whenever your understanding of finances, whenever you think you have understanding on something, say, but God, what do you say about that? And if God's ways are different than your understanding, Solomon says, go with God's ways. And when you do that, your, your path will become clear because I've settled the issue of trust and because I'm making and keeping commitments, I'm going to obey whenever I become aware of what God wants me to do. A, a great way to think about this is I'm obeying Jesus more quickly than I used to. Right? Hey, you know what? I became aware of this thing 
And then uh, about six months later, I actually put it into practice. And then I became aware of this other thing, and it only took me three months to, to actually put it into practice. I'm growing. It's amazing. I'm obeying Jesus more quickly than I used to. And whenever we follow Jesus, awareness, when we become aware of something, and then we obey. God shows us which path to take. But this process doesn't begin with more information. It begins with obeying the information that we already have, putting into practice what we're aware of. Paul would later uh, write it like this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. I I thought I understood it. I thought I knew it this way, but God, your way says this, so I'm going to let you change the way that I think. I'm not just going to follow the patterns of the world, but I'm going to let you change the way that I think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In other words, if you just do what you think seems right to do, just because it's how culture says you should do it, or just because uh, everyone else is doing it that way, it doesn't mean it will take you where you actually want to go. And more importantly, it doesn't mean that you will become spiritually mature. Because that only happens on the heels of obedience. God, I've become aware of your way of doing something, so I'm going to submit my life to your way. Number four. This is super important. Spiritual maturity is marked by a growing love for God and others. At the end of the day, all of this means nothing if we aren't becoming more and more like Jesus. Which means... We have a growing love for God and a growing love for other people. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is teaching a group of people and asks, someone asks, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus responds, the most important commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second one is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. According to Jesus... True spiritual transformation, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is never measured by how much you know, but by how well you love. It's never measured by how many Bible verses you know, Bible knowledge, following the rules. It's always measured by, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Am I putting God and others first? It's a very different grid by which to measure your life. And sometimes over the years, we've had people say to me, I wish that the teaching at Westbridge was just deeper. I wish it was deeper. And I know exactly what they mean by that. And again, it comes from maybe a religious background where people went verse by verse through the Bible or uh, they're looking for some, some big wow thing to just hit them so that they go home and just go, that was just so wow. And sometimes it means that they want us to spend six months in chapter one of Ephesians and we go letter by letter and we, we tell you what every Greek word means and we can do that. And I'm confident we could grow this church to about 10 or 15 deep people. (laughs) And you can go home and you can go, that was so deep. Did you understand any of that? No. I have no idea what he was talking about, but man, that was deep. Here's the deepest thing I think Jesus ever said. Love your enemies. That's deep. Pray for people who persecute you. Treat well the people who have mistreated you. Love people, but I don't want you to love people the way that they've loved you. As I have loved you, you love other people. Don't let them be the measure. Don't don't let their treatment of you be the measure by which you treat them. Let the way that I have treated you be the measure by which you treat others. That's deep. And I haven't mastered that yet. 
So when you've mastered that, let me know and then come back for some more deep. See, Jesus said spiritual maturity is defined not by how much we know, but by how well we love. And we've all known people who could quote the Bible and they treat their spouse horribly and they treat their kids horribly and they don't have integrity and there's no joy in their life. And when you don't understand that the goal of spiritual growth is to become more loving, then you can easily buy into this notion that those with the most Bible knowledge or those who do the best job checking the boxes and following the rules are clearly the closest to God. They're the most spiritual. And you can really quickly become critical of other people in the process. Followers of Jesus should be known for how we love and what we're for, not what we're against. And sometimes, unintentionally, churches with well-meaning leaders, and they, they mean well, they position the church as, hey, here's the stuff we got to boycott to get the message of Jesus out into the world. This is the stuff we got to be against. This is the stuff that you got to, you know, make sure that we're against all of these things so that the message of Jesus goes out. And I remember growing up, there were things that we boycotted, there were things we were against. We were against rated R movies, not allowed to watch rated R movies. Passion of the Christ, that one slipped through, but uh, we were against rock and roll. We were against playing cards, against dancing. Should Christians dance? Now, clearly some should not. Okay, that, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a fact. We're against wearing makeup. We're against Disney. We, at one point, we boycotted Disney World. We boycotted McDonald's. When I was 17 years old, our church boycotted McDonald's. And I was like, you, God, I don't think you're going to win this one. I like double quarter pounders too much. <laughs> and the weird thing is this. The mission of the church is to reach people. We just didn't seem to like any of them. We were just against everything. Now, this was well-intentioned. People going, I, I think this is the right thing. We're supposed to stand up for things. But unintentionally, we lost sight of the fact that a mark of spiritual maturity is not being against a bunch of stuff or knowing a bunch of stuff or following a bunch of rules. It's becoming more and more like Jesus, a growing love for God and others. Spiritual growth is, that's the measure of spiritual maturity, not how much you know, how well you love. Number five, spiritual maturity is a lifelong process. This is so important. God forgives me instantly. His grace is free, but he changes me over time. It's a, it's a process in which I partner with the Holy Spirit through my decisions and my actions as I embrace my new identity as a part of God's family. God rescues me. He gives me his grace instantly, forgives me instantly, but changes me over time. Nobody matures overnight. And God uses time and trials and life experiences and relationships to develop us and shape us and chip away at our hearts and help us to become who he's created us to be. Think about growth simply in human terms. Initially, as newborns, we're not good at anything, right? We're like little human sprinklers with fluids coming out everywhere. And we can't do anything on our own, and eventually what happens? We start to learn how to crawl, and then we start to learn how to, you know, eat on our own, and then we start to stand up on our legs, and we walk around like we're intoxicated, and then eventually we start to run without smacking into stuff. And it's this long progression over time, and I wish it wasn't a process. Honestly, I wish Jesus just goes, hey, boom, you're Jesus Jr. overnight. Like, that'd be great. But it doesn't work like that. We live in a broken world, and we still have free will, and there's this process of trusting him and becoming more like him. And when people sometimes say, well, I think Christians are hypocrites, I'm like, yeah, we are. Guilty. There's a lot of stuff that I believe that I, that I, I wish I could get there, and I'm not there yet because I'm in process. And if that makes me a hypocrite, I guess I am because I'm doing my best to follow Jesus, but I know I fall short because this is a process. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on 
to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. He says, God's, God's rescued me. He's given me his grace, but I got, I got a part to play. And I recognize that, that I'm, I'm, I fall short sometimes, but I forget what's behind me, and I just keep one day at a time, I keep pushing forward until eventually I will reach that day when I, I, I'm with Jesus. But until then, it's a process. Now, this isn't license to disobey, but hopefully it's a realistic picture of spiritual maturity in this process. My hope is that every one of us can look back over the last year and point to areas of our life where we've grown, where we're obeying Jesus more quickly than we used to, where we've become more loving than we were before, where we've become more patient, where we have more joy, where we have more peace, that we can look back at last year or five years ago or 10 years ago and say, I'm not the same person I was then because God rescued me. He gave me his grace instantly, forgave my sins and my past instantly. But over time, he's changing me as I partner with that work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I have a buddy who's a pastor, and one day uh, somebody came up to him and said, hey, pulled him aside, said, there's a guy smoking, out, uh, smoking a cigarette out in front of the building. You want me to say something to him? And my buddy responded and said, absolutely. Please congratulate him for me. Three weeks ago, he was smoking something else entirely. That's amazing. <laughs> he said, God, God must really be helping him to grow. That's the, that is... Spiritual growth is a process. Over time, God helps us to grow. So God wants you to trust him. Then, as you trust him, God wants you to make and keep commitments that help you to become more spiritually mature. And then when you become aware of something that God wants you to do, that you obey. And as you do that, as you continue to obey, then it will make you more and more like him. You'll become more loving. You'll become more patient. You'll become more kind and compassionate. And it's something that you work on throughout your life. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. So let's be the church that's committed to growing and not just maintaining. Let's be a church that strives for spiritual maturity where we put God and others first. And we don't measure it by Bible knowledge and rules, but that we measure it by how well we're loving, by are we, are we trusting God, are we putting God first, are we putting others first, and let's make and keep commitments to help us do that consistently, and let's do that for our whole life. Let's commit to that process until the day when God restores everything and all things will be as they should be. And I think if as a church we will collectively embrace those things, it will make a massive difference in your life. It'll make a massive difference in our community. And if you're here and you've never settled that issue of trust, if you're watching and you've never settled that issue of trust, where you're like, I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm not sure where I stand with Jesus. You need to know this. You were created to exist in loving community with God and other people. It's why you exist. It's why you draw breath. You can't escape it. And yet every one of us has the same trust issue as the very first man and woman. Throughout history, all of us have kind of said, God, I'm going to live life my own way. And so it's broken relationship with God and relationship with others. And so God sent Jesus into the world to restore trust, to restore that brokenness, to show us what God is like, how to live, and how to love. And in the ultimate expression of love, his body was put to, he, he was allowed to, allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, people who saw him, he rose from the dead. And that's why we can say with confidence, put the old you to death, because death has already been conquered. God wants to resurrect you as a brand new person, brand new life. And death is not the end. And you have been invited to be a part of God's family. You come as is, you don't earn your way in, but then 
from there you have a starting point to become everything God's created you to be. And if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, I want to encourage you, whether you're online or right here, you can say yes to that. You can start following Jesus. You can receive his grace. Just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you never walked away from me. And I want to say yes to this invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And and then help me to do my best to follow you, to put my trust in you as I continue to move forward. And God, I pray for every single one of us. May we continue to grow. May we not just maintain, but may we continue to grow spiritually to become mature followers of you who make and keep commitments, who obey more quickly than we used to. And as we collectively do that in our own lives, may we be a church that helps other people find and follow Jesus. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.